A traditional 16th century English melody is joined to a poem by William Dix in the Christmas carol, What Child Is This? He asks, What child is this who, laid to rest, on Mary's lap is sleeping? And the glorious refrain trumpets the answer that we know, This, this is Christ, the King, the Babe, the Son of Mary. And as moving as that song is, we notice, however, that Dix does not offer anything like a very thorough answer there, does he? This is Christ, the Messiah. This is the King. This is the Babe, the Son of Mary. There's an awful lot that is left unsaid. And the Christian church has really been laboring for 2,000 years to grasp the full significance of who Christ truly is. One of the major problems we encounter in the process is that Jesus defies categorization. As human beings, this is how we learn. We categorize things. You think of any discipline in which you're involved, your job or some hobby that you're involved in, something that you find interest in, you're going to categorize. That's the way that our mind works. We distinguish nouns from verbs and insects from birds. And we distinguish vegetables from fruits and shoes from boots and on it goes. Stars from planets and even star among star. We're always distinguishing and categorizing things to understand them. And perhaps the most fundamental category of distinction is that between the natural realm and the supernatural realm. The Christian worldview insists that God is utterly distinct from the physical universe which he has created. The Bible is the most anti-pantheistic book on the planet. Pantheism, confusing God with his creation, confusing Godness with the world that we see, the Bible is very distinct from that view. The Bible teaches that God is different than the world that he has created. And yet the Bible's revelation of Jesus defies this categorical distinctiveness between God and man, causing our minds to reel as we seek to comprehend the implications of this truth. Who is this child lying in a stable's manger surrounded by rugged shepherds who've invaded Joseph and Mary's privacy? As we think on that scene and consider who indeed is this child? What we know biblically quite well must first of all embrace is that Jesus is a man. This child in this manger as we view that scene is every bit man as you and I would be. We witness this in the descriptions of his birth and maturation. We're going to look through a number of passages today, so get ready to turn, lick your fingers and get ready, or uh, just listen in as we will be at various passages. But in Luke chapter 2, we witness in the description of Christ's birth the evidence that he is genuinely a man. Luke chapter 2 and verse 7. Luke 2 and verse 7 we read, Verse 6, I'm sorry, and while they were there, the time came for her, Mary, to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. She gave birth to her firstborn son. The language can say it no more clearly than that Jesus is a man. Birth to a woman. And you notice here that he is referred to as him in the singular. 
This may seem to be patently obvious, but it is necessary to put this together and recognize this. Jesus never refers to himself, nor does anyone else, as they. There in the manger they laid. No, it is he, it is him, always in the singular. We'll come back to that point. Luke chapter 2 and verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. God cannot grow in his knowledge. God knows all things, past, present, and future, fully, completely, intuitively. He never learns. He never forgets. He has all knowledge that is possible. All at once. But Jesus learned. He grew in wisdom. He grew, indeed, in stature, physically maturing. We find further evidence of Jesus' humanity in his own self-perception. Jesus always refers to himself as a man. In John 8 and verse 40, to use one example, he said, You seek to kill me, to his enemies, a man who has told you the truth. He thought of himself as a man. Yet further evidence may be found in many historical descriptions of Jesus' frailty. Fill in the blanks. We know of them in various places. But he was, I think in John 4, where he was wearied from his journey, we read. He was sitting there beside Jacob's well. Matthew records Jesus sleeping in sheer exhaustion. Matthew 8. During his 40-day fast, Jesus grows hungry in Matthew 4. And on the cross, he cries, I thirst John 19 and verse 28. These are not things that God can do, if we use it in that sense of the term. These are human things, matters of frailty. Taking it even further, Hebrews 4 and verse 15 does not blush to declare that Jesus suffered temptation to sin. Like all of us, Jesus experienced cravings to satisfy his flesh against the will of his Father. He was tempted to sin in every way as we are yet without sin. Most tellingly, Jesus died. He did not swoon. He did not ascend directly to heaven. It was not a ruse. Jesus was pierced and found to be dead by the soldiers, taken down from the cross, was buried and placed in a tomb. Jesus died. He was a man. While such evidences of Jesus' genuine humanity fill the pages of the New Testament, this reality is more, however, than just an inference that we draw from the pages of Scripture. There's more to it than that. The real humanity of Jesus is an essential, fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. 1 John chapter 1, if you will turn there. 1 John chapter 1. John makes this very clear in his first epistle. 1 John 1, beginning at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon. He is speaking here of Christ, as this will become clear. But we've looked on him with our eyes. We have touched him with our hands. Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it. And testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. He is declaring what he has seen and heard. He is declaring indeed in verse 1 what we have touched with our hands. All right, John, pretty exercised here. We've seen him and touched him and he's been with us here in physical form. But not only was Jesus a man, we find in chapter 4 that anyone who denies that Jesus was a man is walking in rebellion against God himself. 
1 John chapter 4 and verse 1. 1 John 4 and verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. I think we can fill in there the idea being, there's an ellipsis here, but verse 2, the idea is that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. So verse 3, every spirit that does not confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. He's pretty clear here, isn't he? God's Spirit witnesses the truth to believers that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. I suppose that it would be technically possible for someone to hear the message of Jesus Christ and believe that he was God and respond in saving faith to that and not be fully understanding that he was man. But I think as the Spirit of God brought that message of truth to bear in that person's life, they will embrace it. Because the Spirit of God will teach this truth that Jesus was indeed man. This is essential, John says, to our faith. And those who reject this truth are not merely mistaken. If they consciously reject this truth, they are separated from God. It is a spirit that does not come from Him. There's our category. There's no question what category Jesus is in. The problem comes, of course, at this point that the New Testament also puts Jesus in another category and messes with the way that we think and the way that we operate. Because just as strongly as it insists upon the fact that he is man, it secondly insists upon the fact that he is God. How would we show that? How would we demonstrate that? And perhaps immediately, miracles that Jesus performed come to mind. But we must remember, of course, that true miracles evidence the operative power of God. They do not necessarily prove divinity of those who perform them. So Jesus stilled the sea. And that was indeed an evidence that he was God and ruler over creation. But there had to be more happen than that because Moses split the Red Sea. That didn't make him God. Jesus raised the dead, but so did Elisha. The power is coming from God. The miracles themselves do not prove the deity of Christ. But... When Jesus healed, for instance, the paralytic in, in Mark chapter 2, he did so, quote, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, if God is working through Moses to split the sea, there's really no question in that, but if he's working through Moses to do that, does Moses stand on the edge of the Red Sea and say, I want to demonstrate to you that I have the power to forgive sin? Not at all. Indeed, God disciplines Moses very severely, doesn't he, when there's some question as to where the power's coming from. Do we need to bring water from the rock? Moses doesn't enter the promised land because of that sin. But should Moses stand on the banks of the Red Sea and say that, I have the power to forgive sins, let me show you as I split the sea, it would be blasphemy. But Jesus says, I have the power to forgive sins and to demonstrate that God is working through me to do that, which only God can do, forgive sins. I say to this man who is paralyzed, stand up and walk. And he did. 
God's power was working through Jesus and was demonstrating that he was indeed God. But beyond the miracles, there are very profound statements of his deity. In fact, centuries of preparation for it. And we think of these texts at this time of year, perhaps particularly. But Isaiah 7, verse 14, you don't need to turn to these passages in Isaiah as such, but recall, Emmanuel will come. God with us. A child will be born who is called God with us. Isaiah 9 For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and his name shall be called Mighty God. A child is born who is called Mighty God, El Gibor. The Hebrew phrase is never used of anyone but God in the Old Testament. This child will be called El, God. Turn, please, to the book of John, and we go to the writings of the one who's labored so hard to insist that we must believe Jesus came in the flesh and goes to work here in his gospel to insist that we must understand Jesus is God. John chapter 1 and verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, defying our logic. He was with God and God at the same time. John's no idiot. He didn't make a mistake there in the first phrase of his gospel. He's drawing a distinction and yet an essential relationship between the two. He was in the beginning with God. In case we thought that he tripped, he restates it, both with God and God. The reference is clearly to Jesus as the context bears out. Coming to verse 14, the Word became flesh. This Word who was God and is God became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word becomes flesh, chapter 3 and verse 13 of John. John 3 and verse 13, Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven. No person in their right mind is going to claim to have descended from heaven. They may say, I'm going to heaven, but no one in their right mind says, I have come from heaven. This is precisely what Jesus claims. Chapter 8 and verse 58 of John. John 8 and verse 58. Jesus says something here very strange to these Israelites when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham lived centuries before Jesus Christ. But he says, before Abraham was, in time, in history, I am. Chapter 10 and verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Now the critics of Scripture quickly want to write this off and explain it away, that Jesus and the Father are one, just like you and the Father can be one if, if you're a Christian or something along those lines. But you notice the Jews didn't have any question about what he was saying. Verse 31, they picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father, For which of them are you going to stone me? In other words, God is working through me, which is evident through the miracles that I am performing and the good words that I'm teaching. Why are you stoning me? The Jews, verse 33, answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. It is not only Jesus who said these things. It is not only those who wrote about the life of Christ that spoke of him as God. It is indeed his own enemies who understood this was his testimony, that he was God. 
chapter 20 and verse 28 of this book. John 20 and verse 28. Jesus has risen from the dead. Thomas did not see him and says when he does and hears from Christ, John 20 and verse 28, my Lord and my God. What does Jesus do? No, no, no. You don't understand. You're not to worship me. I am just the servant. It's not what he says. He says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. He receives worship, which the angels don't do. He receives worship. He is God. In Colossians chapter 1, in Hebrews chapter 1, we read of Jesus as the creator of the universe. And then if you'll turn to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, if there's any question left after Paul has described Jesus as the creator of the universe in chapter 1 of this book, verses 16 and 17 in particular. He is the one who's created all things and holds all things together. In chapter 2 and verse 9, this profound statement, he says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Paul's not running away from the bodily presence of Christ here, but saying right with it, all the fullness of the divine dwells in him. Let's take a deep breath, and what we've got to do is start the work to put it together. And the Christian church has been working at this for two millennia to try to put these things together. Jesus as the God-man. I write these out for you to read here on the overhead just because of their intricacy, I guess, and just to give you some time to meditate on them. But the eternally pre-existent Son of God became a human being, Jesus of Nazareth, at a specific moment in history and at a specific place. Secondly, Jesus is one person possessing two distinct natures, that is, all of the attributes that pertain to God and all of the attributes that pertain to man. He possesses full deity and perfect humanity, united without mixture, that is not combining to form one nature, without division, that is, creating two persons, and without alteration by their union, that is, making him less than God, less than man, or both. Thirdly, Jesus forever remains who he always was, God, very God, when he became what he had never to that point been, man, very man, and will forever uniquely be. Now, there's none of us that came up with that idea. That's not something that you can sit around and concoct on your own. It would be laughed out of court immediately. But it's something we have to come to terms with as we take the Word of God at face value. We're talking about people that are the same as we are, that think the same way that we think in many respects, and write without blushing that He is man and that He is God. And as we put it together, we come to some of these ideas and ask the question, how? We don't have any categories for such a person, but how does this come about? Perhaps one of the most succinct and specific statements comes in Philippians chapter 2. I invite you to turn there. I'd like to settle down in this for just a few moments. Philippians chapter 2, Paul is writing to the Philippian believers about their behavior toward, with one another and their attitude toward one another. 
Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, are very practical, talking about the need for unity within the church and how we should relate to one another. And then he says in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, who's that talking about, verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, so speaking clearly about Jesus Christ and says that he was in the form of God. Now the English here stumbles to try to convey the depth of this statement and the several statements throughout this passage. But notice the phrase in verse 6, was. He was in the form of God. The word was is not the verb to be, but the Greek word is a present participle. We might translate it subsisting. Jesus was perpetually subsisting in the very form of God. This is something going on in his life, in his existence. He is God. It's a profound way to say it. But, the middle of verse 6, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Although he possessed the status of God, he was subsisting eternally in the very form of God. He did not cling on to that status at all cost. But, verse 7, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Now notice the phrase, made himself nothing. I think the ESV goes with this phrase for a particular reason, and we'll get to that in a bit, but it could be translated, and perhaps most accurately is translated, that he emptied himself, the Greek word kanao. He emptied himself. This is a crucial concept in understanding the relationship between the Son's deity and humanity. Now dig in here a little bit because we're getting to the heart of this mystery. won't answer it all for us, but we're really walking here on hallowed ground, as we always are, of course, but this is unique. The kenosis, it is referred to, or kenotic theology, from this Greek word kenao, Jesus emptied himself. In what way did he empty himself? In the late 19th century, beginning then, German and English theologians began to propound the novel theory they referred to as the kenosis theology, that Jesus emptied himself of certain divine attributes. He let go of omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence. He let go of all three of those. Some said that he let go of all of his divine attributes. You see a passage in Scripture that says Jesus doesn't know the hour that the Son of Man will come. Well, clearly He's no longer omniscient. God knows all things past, present, and future completely, fully, intuitively, and Jesus doesn't know when He's supposed to come back. He has emptied Himself of divine attributes. Well, you notice as we look very carefully that the text doesn't say that. It's not anywhere indicated that this is how we should understand it. If we read carefully, we note that Jesus did not empty himself of anything, but he emptied himself. Notice the phrase in verse 7, made himself nothing. He emptied himself. Notice the participle, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. There are three participles there, all which speak of God adding something to Jesus. So the self-emptying of Jesus consisted in taking the form of a servant and thus becoming what he had not been to that point in time. There's a television commercial of a couple that goes to a car dealership and picks up this beautiful new truck and asks if they can take it out for a test drive. You ever see this? And they bring it back 
and it is absolutely covered in mud, and they're sold. They were out four-wheeling in some field, and of course, you know, the salesman standing there with big eyes. Now, that truck had something added to it, didn't it? Was it an improvement? It doesn't work perfectly as an illustration, but you get a little bit of the idea that you can empty yourself of something by adding something else. Jesus Christ became something that he never was to that point, and that was man. He emptied himself of the reputation and status of God by taking on what he had not at that point been, and that is man. Philippians were not to empty themselves of attributes, are they? Think of it contextually. Is that what Paul's saying? I want you to empty yourself of attributes. There's certain good things about you that I want you to set aside. That's not the point of the context at all. They're to let go of status in order to serve others. Perhaps they are to become something they're not by emptying themselves of reputation and status, becoming a servant. That's just like what Jesus did. The ultimate example is Christ who emptied himself of the esteem and the reputation and the splendor of God. Think of what he has done for us. He became a man. Indeed, as the text says, the one who was in the form of God, verse 6, took on the form of a servant. Verse 7, same meaning. We're going to give it a different meaning? No, in every way, shape, and form he was a servant by doing what he did. And in every way, shape, and form he was God. He was in the form of God, in the form of man. You don't strip off deity like a jacket. I'm just going to divest myself of certain attributes as God. You can't do that or you cease to be God, which I think for many of these theologians in the kenosis theology is what they're aiming at, is to strip Jesus of deity, at least to find a way to do so in their minds. But the point is that he is every bit God and every bit now man. We read on in verse 8 that being found in human form, there's that same idea, the form of God, verse 6, the form of man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus became the quintessential servant, taking the form of a servant, contrasting with his subsisting in the form of God. Not contrasting by canceling, but contrasting by adding. Becoming something he wasn't. Now, he's got to be God for this to even make any sense at all. If I say, you know, recently I was in Africa, and I chose not to insist on people treating me as the President of the United States. Aren't you impressed with my humility? You say, no, you're not the President of the United States. I'm not impressed at all. You see the point. I can't insist on someone not treating me like someone I'm not and being humble. The po whole point of this passage is Jesus was indeed God. And that is the very proof of his humility. He took on the form of a servant, though he was God, very God. Jesus chose not to hold on to his reputation as God. This was a genuine act of humility, precisely because he had every right to that reputation. He chose to permit his divine attributes to some way that we find mysterious, remain latent in him as he submitted to the natural limitations of a human body. He did know all things as God. 
that that attribute was somehow left latent within him as he did not know all things and grew and learned as a man, just like we do. Jesus did not walk around like some celestial Clark Kent pretending to not be Superman, kind of going through this act all the time that I really know all things. I can read everything that's in your mind. I know everything that's coming down the way here. I have all power right on my fingertips, but I'm just not, I'm going to pretend that I don't. I think all of that was there. It lay latent within him, but he had submitted himself in some unique way to the direction of the Spirit so that he, very much like us, indeed precisely like us, needed to rely upon the Spirit's direction and leading and wisdom all along the way. He was fully man, submitted fully to God, just like we are to be. Walking in the weakness of human flesh, relying fully on the Holy Spirit to provide necessary knowledge, Jesus learned things that he did not know as a man. Now, we have to understand, we put this all on, and it's mysterious to us, and we see the depth and the wonder of it. But, you know, as uh, Dr. Bookman put it here when he was here a few years ago or months ago, we've had 2,000 years to get used to this. It's a good phrase, and we need to remember that. This has been a battle that has gone on for a very, very long time. And I don't want to dig in deeply here at all, put anybody to sleep in any way, but just take a look at this chart and think through. On the left column, there are the names of various isms, various movements that have sought to discern the relationship between God as man and God as God, and Christ as man and Christ as God. And we see the date there, that there are, there are hundreds of years between them. I have nothing for adoptionism. really came to bear in the 8th century, but had evidences of it all through, all along. And so we, we really don't even date that. We can go right to this day and put down at the bottom of our chart Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, who also are part of this chart. But you can see there, as you look at the divine and human nature of Christ, there are those ideas that say, yes, divine, no, to the human nature of Christ, or no, to the divine nature, he was just a man, or partial matters. That is, there's some effect upon the union of these natures. Going down to the bottom line, there's, there was a statement that he had only one nature that was somehow combining divine and human and the final column, using person simply to fit in Nestorianism here, which was one attempt to say he's fully God, he's fully man, but he's two persons, in which case he should have been referring to we as he spoke and to they in the manger as opposed to him in the manger, the he that was there. So you can see that there's been many, many centuries of debate and trial through all of this. Going back to the second point uh, Jesus is one person possessing two distinct natures. We say that on the basis of an awful lot of debate and struggle to understand this great truth. He possesses full deity and perfect humanity, united without mixture, without division, and without alteration, answering all of these attempts, indeed, and places heresies to understand how we put these two together. I'll be glad you don't have to work through every one of those. It's, it's, a, it's a long, painstaking process. But we do have to get some sense of heritage here. 
some sense of appreciation historically for the many who have labored so long and hard to defend these ideas. And as someone would float a bad idea, it would put the people who were biblically oriented to work to come up with some of the most profound statements that we have in Christianity concerning the work of Christ. But is this just a debate? What does it really matter? How is this going to change my life? Well, on just one level of answer, I think we should certainly look at Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4, and understand as we do that, that Paul brings out this deep theology about the person of Christ in the context of telling some people how to get along together in the church. We need to understand that every truth that is practical in our Christian life is a truth that is based on the deep teachings of God's Word. Paul says you guys got to get along together. You need to be unified. You need to put one another first. And let me put forward as exhibit number one the quintessential servant, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh, though he had full reputation as God. Consider him. You see, how I understand who Jesus is is to directly affect the way that I treat others in his church and others outside of his church. There's direct connections to all that we are to do to these deep truths. But obviously, we can point it even further more significantly, and that would be as we just bring this one more head to bear, and that is Christ's mediatorial perfection. We understand this as the God-man, but I think we need to land on it and consider it carefully because it's where our salvation lies. Hebrews chapter 2, if you will turn there. Hebrews 2, and just labor a bit longer in discerning the significance of the God-man. Hebrews chapter 2 We can find many places in this book that bring out this concept. But we find it succinctly in Hebrews 2 and verse 9 that we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. What does that mean? He took on flesh. He became man. A little while lower than the angels, Jesus crowned with glory and honor now because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus in the flesh tasted death for us, for sinners. Hebrews 2 and verse 16, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He helps people. In flesh. Therefore, verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. You get the idea. He had to become a man in order to stand between us and God. How did he do that? Notice the last phrase. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. God is telling us Jesus had to become a man in order to satisfy the wrath of God against sin. Jesus took on flesh that he might bear the wrath of God against sinful humanity. He bore our sins on the cross, 1 Peter 2 says. Now if you saw in your horror a man for no reason, unprovoked, 
kill his mother right in front of your eyes. You're horrified by this scene. You're haunted by it. And you go to the trial to see that justice will be served and make sure that everybody's online with what really happened. This young man just lashed out against his mother and struck her down and killed her. And the judge says, young man, I understand that you hate your mother, that you killed her. And I also understand that you have a dog that you really adore. I am going to kill your dog so that justice is served here. The gavel falls and the court adjourns and you're left saying what? That doesn't work. That is unjust. This man killed a woman. You're not going to kill his dog. Now, that might seem a little bit radical and perhaps it's not a perfect parallel. But there's a truth here. Throughout all of the Old Testament, God gave animals to his people a way of atoning for sin by substituting the animal in the place of the man. Why did that system have to continue, continue, continue? Animal after animal after animal. The book of Hebrews answers that question. It is because it is incomplete sacrifice. You can't substitute an animal for a man. It is a man, it is a woman who has sinned against God. The only true substitute is another person. There is only one way that we can be saved, and that is that a person dies for our sin. That person can be you, or in the grace of God, that person can be Jesus Christ. This is why he came, and this is why he died. In chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, we read that in this way, by being such a man, he is the perfect high priest between us and God. He understands our weaknesses. He sympathizes with them, and we can draw near to him, this one who took on flesh and lived sinlessly. In Romans 5, verses 18 and 19, as Adam disobeyed as the head of our race, we find that so Jesus obeyed God as the head of a new race. As we die in Adam, so we can be made alive in Christ. Remember 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. If you're not familiar with it, turn there and remember this glorious truth about Jesus Christ. And notice how Paul brings these themes together as he says, there is one God, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. This one God-man stands between us and God. He is human, taking our place, dying a physical human death in our place, which is the wages of sin. But He is also God, and so He does not die for his own sin, he dies for ours. Because he is God, he is the sinless lamb, the perfect sacrifice. He stands then perfectly between God and man. Because as the God-man, he has come to bear our sins and propitiate the wrath of God against us. And now we have access to God through this salvation that Jesus has provided. I was reading... A commentary this week, and the author said, 
The resurrection of Jesus Christ is difficult to understand, but not nearly as hard to understand as the Incarnation. And I bristled at that for a moment, uh, thinking in some way that that belittled the resurrection. But I think as I read him more carefully, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that obviously it is miraculous for someone to come to life, but this issue of God and man in one is beyond us. And I think he's right in that. I don't think we can grasp it. And two millennia of development with many failed attempts along the way, are indication. In fact, some of the things that I read this week have been done very recently and have made advances in our understanding of how this works. Somebody 2,000 years later still writing about the same thing, and we've got a lot figured out, particularly in 451 at the Council of Chalcedon as to who Christ is. But here we are in the 21st century, and there's authors still writing to investigate the depths of this truth. Drawing from an ancient writer, one recent commentator twists the point a bit, but says wisely, we do not first discover who Christ is and then believe in him. We believe in him. And then we discover who he is. There may be somebody here today, and you say, I don't, I don't get it. I don't really get who he is. What you need to understand is that this Jesus came as a perfect, spotless, sinless sacrifice and died to pay the penalty of your sin. He rose from the dead to defeat death and by trusting in what he has done by his grace for you, there is salvation. There is forgiveness of sin. There's no other one who has done this. There's other religious gurus who tell you all kinds of even sometimes good things. There is no one who has stood in your place to pay the death that you owed to God. No one. And he has done this not because you deserve it or I deserve it or anyone ever has, but by his grace and by his mercy alone. This is not built on the grace and the mercy of others who have gone before us. It is built on His grace alone. If you have come to embrace that message of salvation in Christ, then we ask together, what child is this? We're only beginning to understand. But in Him we exalt with a joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. God has come among us. He has given salvation. That's why we sing. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we come into your presence humbled by our lack of comprehension of the wonder, the beauty of Christ coming to earth. As we strive to bend our minds and understand the God-man, may we rejoice together at the salvation that he has provided. We ask this question, what child is this? And you have answered it in your word as far as we can comprehend. And I pray that each one of us would embrace this answer and realize that he is the Christ, the King, the Savior, the one who took on flesh to give us saving grace. Draw us to that light and may we rejoice in it together today as we continue to respond. In Christ's name I pray, amen.